0: So, yeah, this is kind of a day of endings. I mean, here we are, New Year's Eve. It's kind of odd that we're gathering on New Year's Eve. That doesn't happen very much. In fact, I think it might be the first time in nine years we actually had Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve on Sunday. So it's, it's a little bit different. But here's a day of the ending of 2017 and the ending of our attendance here as a community. And so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a day you know, and I can't believe that it's already here. I mean, for three months since the first of October, we knew that we've been moving, and so it's been like a, this freight train building up steam. But here we are today, and needing to uh, to move. So it's a day of endings, but obviously it's also a day of beginnings. You know, every ending is just a beginning if you don't stop. We talked as a board about maybe celebrating today. You know, our last day here in the space, and we decided, no, we're not going to celebrate the ending. We're going to celebrate the beginning. So that was our choice, and so we'll be having a uh, kind of a grand opening celebration sometime later in January. We'll we'll be planning that, but um, this idea of the ending also being the beginning is uh, is something that I want to explore a bit this morning, because it's been something that's really been going through my head as I've been retooling um, my. My thoughts and, and just my perceptions, and as we as we move into this new space after such a long time, people have asked me at intervals over, especially increasingly in the last uh, month, "Am I excited about the move?" You know, and honestly, I think excited is is not the right word. I'm certainly anticipating, um, but excited. Let me see if I can develop that a little bit. People often comment about this room when they come in. I don't know if if you have heard those comments or made them yourself, but people walk into this room, sometimes for the first time, they'll comment that they feel something different here. They feel a sense of something. Sometimes they call it spirit, the sense of the spirit. Sometimes they just call it a warmth. Sometimes they call it a feeling of, of connection or belonging. It can be a lot of different things. But we've heard this often through the years, that people feel this. And for me, it's especially at night. If you haven't been here in this room at night, then you haven't been in this room because this room transforms at night the way the lights come down and there's just kind of this ambient glow and I just feel like I want to sit here forever when when it's like, especially with the tree and everything. It's just, it's amazing. Friday, two days ago, I spent the entire day at the New Space and I was clearing things out and getting everything prepped and ready for our move today. And so I was just doing just gnarly, ugly things like moving furniture that was still placed because some new flooring was put in and, and making room and storage to put things over. And then I spent the whole back end of the day just working on lights because I haven't had time to work with the stage lights and uh, they're all different, and the board is different, so I'm trying to figure this stuff out, and I'm cutting gels. You know what gels are? They're the little like colored cellophane that goes in front of the lights in little frames and gives them the color, so I had to re-gel things, and so I had something like a 16-foot ladder to get up to one set of lights and a 10-foot ladder to get to another set of lights, so there was ladders, and when it got to the end of the day, this is about by 6 o'clock or so, I'd been there 10 hours or whatever it was, and I'm sitting on the stage, it's all dark, and I just have this one pool of light, the ones that I'm working on that were right overhead, and I'm sitting on the stage and cutting gels. And I'm looking out at all these empty seats, and I was just imagining all your faces in those seats. And it was it was just a, an interesting moment. There, the entire building was, was empty except for me. I'm sitting in this darkened room, cutting my gels, and just looking out, and I'm seeing your faces in these seats. And it was an interesting experience. You know, what did I feel about this new room? It's a room. It's a nice room, but it's just a room. You know, it, it's it's another space. And if we, I, I guess what I'm saying is, if, if, we, if we're just focused on the space alone, we're missing something. That room came alive for me when I saw your faces in those seats sitting there, and it kind of went into a silent prayer and um, and there was a moment that I had, but it was you that took me there. it wasn't the space per se story about Moses and the burning bush, right? I clipped a little section out of Exodus and put it in the inserts, you know if you want to read through, but I think I can paraphrase it enough. Moses had been a shepherd for his father-in-law Jethro for 40 years, 40 years. Imagine. And the Lord speaks to him out of the bush and he says, stop, don't come any closer, Moses. Take off your shoes because the ground on which you're standing. What made the ground holy? Now, the quick answer, of course, is, well, God's presence made it Holy. But I think there's something more here. There's something more we need to take a look at, especially as we're moving from one space to another. What made the ground holy? Why was Moses supposed to take off his shoes? Last October, we uh, did a message in which I took you through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation in about 20 minutes, but just looking specifically at this notion of God's presence and how God's presence as perceived by the Israelites, has changed in the course of 66 books. And it was it was fascinating the way we looked at it because when you think about it, the earliest depictions of God's presence are as this wild presence out in nature, right? The thunder and the lightning on top of the mountain, you know. And and, and the, the burning bush. So from the mountain tops to the wadis, those those dry valleys and riverbeds, there's this this notion of God's presence out there in nature, uncontrollable, wild, not even necessarily interested in my life, my needs, you know, the the circumstances in which I live. It's out there someplace. And then as we move further forward, we see this presence talking to Moses at least, and a few patriarchs before him. But here's Moses talking to this presence. And then the presence appears as a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And now it's like a shepherd guiding the entire nation out of Egypt and through the wilderness. So even though it's out there someplace, now it has purpose. Now it has connection to us. It's guiding us. And then as they start constructing the tent of meeting, Moses gets instruction from God. We see that this pillar of cloud descends and stands outside the tent of meeting and Moses can come to the door of the tent and talk to God there. Moses only, but now it's in the camp. The presence is in the camp, talking to their leader and all the people watch. They come out of their tents and they watch this taking place. But all they do is watch. And then when the tent is completed, The presence comes inside the tent and fills it. And now the presence has come inside. And now they have a portable house of God. They can take him with wherever they go. They can wrap him up and they can take him. They have the Ark of the Covenant that has all the holy things in it. It's kind of like God in a box and they can take that with too. And they can travel wherever they go with their God. And this is a huge step in religious consciousness if you think about it. God is now... Sort of our possession. God is with us. God is for us. God is moving with us. And we're taking him with us. And then when they finally settle and they move out of their nomadic phase and they settle in the land of Canaan and they settle in Jerusalem as their capital and Solomon builds the first temple, the Spirit of God fills the temple. Now they have a permanent house, right? That stands for over 400 years until it's finally destroyed by the Babylonians. And then 70 years later, the temple is rebuilt. But here's the interesting thing. There is no record of the, the presence of God ever filling the second temple, which stood for 500 years until 70 A.D. after Jesus' time. But no record of God's presence, the Shekinah glory, descending and filling that temple. But it does, God's presence does descend again. But where does it descend this time? It descends on Jesus himself at his baptism. When the Spirit descends like a dove and we hear the sound of the voice, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, it descends on Jesus. But then Jesus' temple is destroyed. And then three days later, it's raised again. And then 40 days after that, it ascends into heaven. Does it descend again? Yeah, it does. Fifty days after that, at Pentecost, we have the Spirit descending again on the followers, the first followers of Jesus. And so here's this notion of God's presence. Think about what's happened here. We started with God's presence out in the midst of everything, in nature. And then it moved into a portable house. And then a permanent house. And then it moved back into a portable house again. Jesus himself was the portable house. And then from there, it moves just back into the midst of all of us. And this notion of God's presence changing, it's not that the presence of God is changing, that's unchangeable. What's changing is our perception of where to look for presence. You see how this works? And so here's Paul's big idea that he develops in Corinthians and other places, that we are the temple. We are the living sacrifice. We are Bethel, which literally means house of God. We are the house of God. And then finally in the book of Revelation, where you see the new Jerusalem descending out of the sky and taking up residence on the earth, but there's no temple in it, John tells us. He looks, there's no temple in the city because God's presence is infused everywhere. So we start with God's presence infused everywhere. We understand it being compartmentalized into houses it's part of our religious experience. But then as we move through and we purify that religious experience, it moves back out to be just everywhere again. Literally, as Jesus said in kingdom, don't look out there for the kingdom. Don't look in the Bethels for kingdom, for God's presence, because it is within, it's in the midst, it's among It's everywhere. We don't need that. We're carrying it with us, God's presence. So, what made that ground holy as Moses approached the burning bush? Well, yes, God's presence was there. But God's presence met Moses' presence at that particular spot. And we have to put the emphasis on Moses here because God's presence is everywhere. God's presence precedes us. But Moses brought his shepherd consciousness to bear here 40 years of preparation in silence and solitude where he could see something was happening in a small detail that he would have missed years before that so many others would have missed. He hones in on it and he brings his presence to presence. And that connection is the sacred space. That connection makes the ground holy that connection removes his shoes and that's what we're talking about here god is always present but moses realized it in that moment and the ground became holy for him this room is as holy as any other room <laughs> no more no less it's filled with god's presence 24/7 to the rafters to the max you know god's presence is perfectly present. And so it couldn't be any more and it couldn't be any less. All rooms have God in them to the same extent. God infuses everything that is. But for us in this room, it's as holy as we make it. And here's the beauty. We have made it holy these past nine years. That's what people feel when they come here. It's our presence meeting God's presence that then becomes this palpable thing that people can walk in for the first time and feel something different is going on here. They know it. They feel it. Our next room is as holy as this room. But we will only say that. We will only feel that. And others will only perceive that when we bring our full presence there and meet our God there in the same way that we've done here. When we bring our shepherd's consciousness our awareness that we have honed in our own personal prayer, in our lives, becoming mindful, becoming present, becoming quieter internally, to see the details in all of the mundane, minute details, God's presence. When we do that, when we bring that there, then that is going to make that place consecrated as much as this place has ever been. You know, I suppose for me, this is why the word excited is not really the right word as I anticipate moving to the next space because it implies that that space is somehow greater, somehow superior to this space. Now it's larger, as Frank said. It's got more amenities. You know, that, that's great. But all of that stuff is only going to be meaningful as we gather there and notice that God is already there then that space will be a space that we can really call home. We will actually perceive God's presence descending and filling, even though he already is and already has. But we won't see it and we won't know it until we actually take off our shoes and become one with that presence. So what is the house of God? What is Bethel? What, what is this thing that we're trying to approach here? And here's the catch. As soon as we define it, as soon as we lay it out, as soon as we create the edges, then God has already left the building. And I use that metaphorically, hyperbolically, because God never leaves the building. But our presence, our perception of God will leave the building. God is simply among, in the midst of, within. He's here now. As soon as we try to define it or confine it or compartmentalize it, make it portable so we can carry around, say that God is our possession in some way, that he's not somebody else's, we've already lost it before we begin. We have to understand we can't contain God, but we can hitch a ride with the spirit that is always in motion. That's what we're trying to do here. We are God's house. Not the space, not the building. We are Bethel. God fills us as much as he fills anything else. He is within, as Jesus said about kingdom, God's presence, it is within. And when we become aware of this presence, of our connection to it, then we are the holy ground as well. Our new house will be God's house when we meet him there with full presence. And here's the thing. This isn't just going to happen in worship. This isn't just going to happen in prayer. This is going to happen with every conversation that takes place in this new space. Every embrace. Every tearful share in a meeting. Every sponsor and sponsee who gets together. Every fourth step that will happen there. Every single thing where we allow ourselves to be vulnerable again. Where we open up and allow ourselves to be transparent again, when we break down those barriers, take the risk to let people really see who we are, to take the time to see the burning bush in another person's eyes and see God's presence there, that's where all this is taking place. Not the times of formal worship, as important as they are, it's everything You all know as well as I do, we can go through all the formal worship we want to and never get to the place of vulnerability. Never get to the place of intimacy. Never break down these barriers that keep us and our presence apart from each other and from the presence that is God, that is the default position of every place in the universe. That's what's going to make the difference in this new place. That's what's going to change everything. Every single act of vulnerability Genuine human connection. That's what's going to open this place up. That's what's going to make the difference. I suppose the question that I would ask, and maybe you're asking is, how do we do this? How do we get to the place where we can take these steps forward? I wanted to go to an unlikely place, and it's numbers. Don't spend a lot of time in the book of numbers, usually for good reason. Lots of lists, lots of numbers. Lots of mind numbing numbers, right? But take a look at Numbers thirty three, starting right at verse one. This is a fascinating section of scripture. This is toward the end. You know, in the book of Numbers it, it, it chronicles the, the Did you know? The Jews only yeah, you know, the Jews wandered in the in the desert for forty years. You all heard that before, right? You know. Actually they only wandered for about two. You know, it took them less than two years to get from Egypt to the border of Canaan. That's it. They went there pretty quickly. They took a lot of time at Mount Sinai, got the law, built the tent of meeting, did all the things they were supposed to do, established all the things that defined Israel as a new nation, and then they went right to the border. And they stopped there and they scouted it out. That's where they sent in the 12 spies. And 10 came back all scared stiff. And so the people rebelled. They wouldn't go in. They were afraid to go in. So they spent pretty much the next 38 years at Karnesh Barnea, uh, an oasis, just waiting it out. They had to wait for that whole generation to die before the new generation had the guts to come forward and do what God was pointing them in the direction to do. But in that period, toward the end there, as this new generation is getting ready to move forward, this is when the time when Moses is commanded by God to chronicle all that had happened in this period of time before they're ready to enter the promised land. And here it is, Numbers 33.1. These are the stages of the people of Israel. When they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron, Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage, by command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting places. Verse, skip to verse 5. So the people of Israel set out from Ramesses and kept, camped at Sukkot. And they set out from Sukkot and camped at Itam, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Itam and turned back to Pai Hachirot, which is east of Baal Japhon. And they camped before Migdol. And they set out before Hahiroth, and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. And they went a three days journey into the wilderness of Itam and camped at Marah. And they set out for Marah and came to Elim. At Elim there were twelve springs of waters and seventy palm trees and they camped there. And they set out from Elim, and they camped by the Red Sea. And they set out from the Red Sea. And they camped by in the wilderness of Sin. And they set out from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dofkah. And they set out from Dofkah and camped at Elush. And they set out from Elush, and camped at Refidim, and there where there was no water for the people to drink. And they set out from Rephidim, and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And they sent out from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hata I'm doing the best I can with the Hebrew here. <laughs> and they set out from Kibroth Hata Ava and camped at Hatzerot. And they set out from Hatzerot and camped at Urthma. And they set out from Ritmah and camped at Rimon Perez. And they set out from Rimon Perez and camped at Lipna. And somebody stop me! <laughs> there are 29 more verses of this, <laughs> right? They set out. They set out. They set out. This is numbers, right? Mind-numbing list. They set out. 41 times they set out. 41 times. Moses chronicles the starting places. Yes, there was a camp that they ended up in, but it specifically states they're setting out the starting places, not the ending places, the starting places. This is a fascinating tiny little detail. One of those burning bush moments that if you're moving through the Bible, you know, at 60 miles an hour, that Bible in a year thing, you're just going to miss this. This is going to be another mind-numbing list. But this detail is important. This one detail, if you really think about it, defines an entire worldview of a people. It defines the way that they looked at life, the way they experienced life, the way they went through life, so different than we do. When we start out on a journey, what are we doing? We have a destination in mind, right? We have an outcome in mind. Everything that we do is moving toward that destination. We're not thinking about the starting place. That's incidental. We're thinking about the destination. And the success of that journey or the success of that task is all encompassed in meeting that destination. Hitting that particular outcome. Now think about the Jews' experience here. They were a nomadic people. They were basically moving from water to water with thousands of people with them. I mean, the, the accounts of how many Israelites uh, were actually, that actually left Egypt vary greatly. And, but the numbers could be in the hundreds of thousands if, if, if the, if the uh, scriptures are to be taken literally. You've got that many people. You've got livestock. You've got all of your stuff you've got your tents, and you set out from a place that has water, a place where you can camp and survive, and you don't exactly know where you're going. You've got to find water. Have you ever just started driving and didn't really know where you were going? Just, I'm going to see what I see. I'm going to make sure that if I pass the world's largest ball of twine, I'm going to go check it out. Have you ever done that? Just, I'm just going to go. Now imagine taking a trip like that where you set out in a general direction, but your whole life depends on whether you're going to get to water again before things start dying. It's a whole different conception. Life in the desert. The the desert is like the ocean, you know, the great expanse of the ocean. Can you get to an island soon enough? Can you get to an oasis soon enough? Such a different experience. So they're starting out, but they don't know where the destination will be. They haven't got that clearly formed. They'll know it when they see it, right? But they don't exactly know. So their journeys are defined by the starting points, not the ending points. Just stop for a minute and see how that changes, how that would change your perception, our perception. If we didn't have a stranglehold on the outcome, if we didn't have a clear idea of where it is we think we're going, but we're just willing to start out, to set out, 41 times. The Israelites just set out. They started, and they had to trust. They had to trust their God. They had to trust their leaders, that they were going in a direction that would find water again in time before their families and their livestock started to die. Completely different way of living life. Now we've been camped here for nine years, right? (laughs) And now we're setting out. And it's New Year's Eve and this is uh, not an ending place but now it's a beginning. We're beginning, we're setting out, we're starting out. I'm going to be setting out again, I'm sure, at some point. you know. It's all about setting out into the unknown and letting that be okay. Not having a clear idea of what it is the outcome is going to be, but willing to take that step, willing to take that risk. How are we going to consecrate our new camp down in San Clemente? How are we going to do that? Simply by being willing to set out each and every day into that vulnerability that we're talking about, not knowing how it's going to work out. Every time you give your heart to somebody, every time you allow yourself to let someone in, you have no idea where you're going to find water again. You have no idea what that outcome is going to be. You have put yourself at risk. You could get really hurt And I guarantee you, over time, you will get really hurt. You will have your heart broken. Are you willing to set out again, and again, and again, and trust that there will be water for your soul, for your broken heart, for your spirit, for relationships? This is going to make all the difference. If we have this one outcome in mind, and we're only shooting toward that, whatever that might be, then we'll be completely negating the experience of living in the Spirit. What that really means. What that looked like in desert spirituality. Where the people looked for their God in those fierce landscapes and saw Him there. Are we willing to set out past what's familiar, past what seems safe or comfortable, into a new fierce landscape? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to set out and let ourselves be really seen as imperfect as we are and risk losing people if they could really see who we are? Would they really like us, we wonder? Are we willing to let ourselves be seen to set out without that outcome clearly delineated for us? And are we willing to set out to see God in every detail, in every face, And in our midst and within everything that we do. If we're willing to do that, if we're willing just to show up and let happen what happens when two hearts really come together, then in no time at all, we will call that home and we will understand that it's holy ground and we need to take off our shoes. Let's pray.